So how much sexual faithfulness do you expect from your spouse? To men, how much marital fidelity do you desire from your wife? Ladies, how much covenantal commitment do you demand from your husband? If your spouse were to come to you and say something like this, how would you respond? You know, I think that as I've looked over this upcoming next year, I can make a promise that I'll be faithful to you 353 days. But there'll be about 12 days of the upcoming year when I'll have to hook up with somebody else. Now, let's keep that in perspective. On average, that's only one day a month. For the vast majority of the time, I will be exclusively faithful to you. But there will be a few days when I'll have to take my love outside of the boundaries boundaries of our marital vows. It's at this moment that there are a lot of things you could say with your mouth. It's at this moment there are a lot of things you could do with your fist. But at the very least, you must be thinking to yourself, now that is an insane proposal. And you would be right. It's just about as insane as the spiritual faithfulness of many of us to Christ. Today we begin a new 12-part sermon series entitled Major League, Minor Prophets with a Major Message. Over the next 12 weeks or so, we will examine each of the 12 minor prophets. As you know, the minor prophets are the last 12 books of the Old Testament. They're called minor prophets as to compare them to the major prophets, not because They're minor in significance, but because they're minor in length. There are four major prophets in your Old Testament. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. The average chapter length of the major prophets is 44 and a half chapters. The average length of the minor prophets are five and a half chapters. They're drastically smaller But that doesn't mean that they're insignificant in their message. In the days of antiquity, the minor prophets could all be contained on one large scroll. So people would call them the book of the minor prophets. It was a sacred collection of God's word. It was a special, special book. The minor prophets, they have a message that needs to be proclaimed. They have a message that needs to be obeyed. This morning, I want us to start with the first of those minor prophets. It's the book of Hosea. Ironically, Hosea is one of the largest of the minor prophets. There are 14 chapters in his book. Today, I invite you to draw your sword, take your Bible, turn to Hosea chapter 14. I want to read the first four verses of that 14th chapter. So once you find your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Hosea chapter 14, I'll begin at verse 1, I'll conclude at verse 4. Hear the word of God. 
Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. Your sins have been your downfall. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, forgive all our sins. Receive us graciously that we may offer the fruit of our lips. Assyria cannot save us. We will not mount war horses. We will never again say our gods to what our own hands have made. For in you, the fatherless find compassion. Listen to what the Lord says. I will heal their waywardness and love them freely. For my anger has turned away from them. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. You may be seated. The book of Hosea is a graphic object lesson. Hosea was a prophet that lived in the 8th century B.C. His ministry was sometime between the years of 750 B.C. to 715 B.C. He lived during the days of the divided kingdom with Israel to the north and Judah to the south. The majority of his ministry was against the northern kingdom of Israel. He lived during the days of Isaiah and Amos and Micah. Hosea had a special task. He lived during the days of tremendous economic prosperity for the nation of Israel. During this time in Israel's history, the nation was financially prosperous. But that financial prosperity led to spiritual promiscuity. That happens more times than not, doesn't it? When people are in financial need, many times they'll depend on the Lord. But when there's some margin in the money... They'll become more self-righteous, independent, and fancy-free. Such is the case for Israel. Israel, at this time in her history, had tremendous economic boom. The newest superpower was Assyria. Assyria had all the new shiny toys. And so Israel was beginning to adopt Assyrian priorities and practices and thinking and even religion. And once again, Israel began to drift into idolatry. Their financial prosperity led them to spiritual promiscuity. And it was a slow fade. Isn't that also how it happens? For most of us, as we travel along the spiritual road of life, we very rarely have a a blowout. No, it's usually a slow leak. It's a gradual, slow fade that happens over time. And such is the case in the days of Hosea. God raised up the prophet. Now the prophet's purpose was to say, thus saith the Lord. That was a tremendous task. What a great honor to stand on behalf of God and say, thus saith the Lord. There's a danger with the task of the prophet, though. Because you better make sure that what you're saying is from the voice of God. The worst thing a prophet can do is put words in God's mouth. You need to make sure that what you're declaring is the very word of God. 
So God raised up Hosea, and he gave him a tremendous, unique task. He said, Hosea, I want you to go down to the red light district. I want you to take for yourself a wife who by profession is a prostitute. I want you to marry her. I want you to have children with her. And your children, they'll be a hot mess because they'll be unfaithful as well. Hosea must have said, "Uh uh-oh, come again? What do you want me to do? You want me to go down and marry a prostitute? And the Lord says, yes, that's exactly what I want you to do. Now, why in the world would God put together the preacher and the prostitute? Why would he unite the holy man and the hoochie? Why would the Lord bring together the man of righteousness and the woman of wickedness? Why would God do this? Why would he give this instruction to the prophet named Hosea? And the answer is twofold. Number one, God wants Israel to know just how far adrift she had become. And the Lord wanted to illustrate just how far he would go to retrieve her. So why did the Lord mess up the marriage of Hosea? Why did he choose a marriage relationship to illustrate this point? And I think the answer is that there are very few relationships in your life that demand exclusivity. Most relationships in your life can occur simultaneously. You can simultaneously have multiple friends, coworkers, classmates, teammates. You can simultaneously have multiple children, parents, physicians, even pastors. You can have multiple clients. You can have multiple coworkers. You can have multiple people doing life with you. But in your lifetime, you need to have only one God. And in your lifetime, I know there are exceptions to this statement, but in your lifetime, you need to have one spouse. There are only a couple of relationships in your life that demand such exclusivity. It's because of this reason that God raises up this prophet, a man named Hosea, and he tells him, I want you to go down to the red light district. I want you to take for yourself a wife who's a prostitute by trade. I want you to marry her. And by that marriage, I want you to demonstrate and illustrate just how far Israel has gone adrift. And I want you to illustrate just how far I will go to retrieve my people. So in chapter 1 of Hosea, the prophet goes and he marries the prostitute named Gomer. Are you kidding me? That's the woman's name? Her name is Gomer? I mean, when her parents named her, what did they expect her to become? They might as well just named her Bambi or Trixie or Tootsie. Or, you know, I mean, they named her Gomer for crying out loud. In chapter 1, he goes and he takes Gomer as his wife. In chapter 2, the inevitable happens. Gomer chases after her lovers, just like Israel chases after the pagan nations. In chapter 3, the Lord says to Hosea, I want you to go, and I want you to 
win Gomer back. I want you to love her the way the Lord loves Israel. For Israel has cheated on me, yet I have pursued Israel. And even though Israel breaks vows time and time again, I pursue Israel. So Hosea, I want you to go and I want you to pursue your wife time and time again, even though she cheats on you over and over again. I want you to pursue her. So in chapter 3, Hosea loves his adulterous wife Gomer the way the Lord loves Israel. In chapter 4, the Lord describes the sin of his people. He says there is no love in the land. There is no acknowledgement of the Lord in the land. Instead, there is cursing and lying and murder and stealing and adultery. In chapter 4, the prophet simply calls the nation of Israel stubborn heifers. As I think about that land, it looks a lot like my land, doesn't it? When I think about what's going on in chapter 4 of Hosea in the land of Israel, it looks a whole lot like what's going on in our nation, in our culture, in our land. So I come to this conclusion that the stubborn heifers of Hosea's day look a lot like the stubborn heifers of our day, that the people of God We're just as stubborn in that day as they are in this day. So in chapter 5, the Lord says, The deeds that they have done, do not permit them to return to me. Yeah, sin is that bad. That sin on its own, that sin by its merit, that sin by its description, that the sinful deeds that you and I do, that the sinful deeds that God's people perform, that by that definition, their sin does not permit them to return to God in and of themselves. Their sin was that bad. But guess what? Your sin is that bad. Biblical characters are not given to us as models for morality, but rather as mirrors for identity. When you and I peek and peer into the pages of the Bible, we do not find people who show us how we ought to live. We find people who show us how we actually live. We are just as sinful, just as adrift as the people living in the days of Hosea. So in chapter 7, the Lord says of Israel's love, it is like a morning mist. It's so fleeting. It's like dew that's on the ground. And especially in days like today, that dew does not last very long, does it? It evaporates quickly. And so did the love that God's people had for the God of the people. So in chapter 7, Hosea calls Ephraim. Ephraim's another name for Israel. He says, Ephraim, you are A flat cake not turned over. A flat cake is a pancake. It's a pancake that's only done on one side. It has not been flipped over. Do you ever eat a pancake that's only baked on one side? No, that would be nasty. You've got to have a pancake that's been flipped and turned over because they're called flapjacks, right? You want a pancake that's made baked thoroughly on both sides. What Hosea is telling the people is that your holiness is only half-baked. 
So in chapter 8, if you sow to the wind, you'll reap a whirlwind. Your sinful actions, they, they bring consequences. And if you sow to the wind, you'll reap a whirlwind. If you sow to sinfulness, you will reap a sinful whirlwind. In chapter 9, he begins to itemize some of those consequences of Israel's sin. And, and one of those descriptions is that a mother's womb miscarries and her breasts run dry. Hosea is reminding the people that your sin it doesn't just affect you, but it affects the next generation as well. Your sinfulness carries consequences. Some of those consequences not only affect you, but also the next generation. Hosea says it's like a, a woman whose womb miscarries. And her breasts do not produce milk, but instead they run dry. So not only is the woman affected, but also her offspring. In chapter 10, Hosea describes Israel as a spreading vine, that in spite of all of this sin, in spite of all of these consequences, there was still prosperity in Israel. Israel, the nation, it was still a spreading vine. It was still producing clusters of grapes. Have you ever stopped and th thought to yourself, I wonder why God doesn't just zap his people? I mean, why does he keep blessing the nation? Why does he keep blessing the culture? I mean, that would probably get our attention, right? And the question could be asked, well, why didn't he zap the people during the days of Hosea? Because even though there was sin, and even though they were sowing to the wind and reaping the whirlwind, and even though they were having consequences for their sinful actions... Still in chapter 10, Israel is described as a spreading vine. It is flourishing. The economy still booming. And when there is that financial prosperity, sometimes, oftentimes, it leads to spiritual promiscuity. In chapter 10, Hosea simply says that even though Israel is a spreading vine, the problem is that all the fruit that he produces... He uses on himself. Hosea chapter 11. The Lord changes the analogy just a bit. He says of Israel, you are my child. Out of Egypt I have called my son. It is Matthew, the gospel writer, who will take that first verse of Hosea chapter 11 and apply it to Jesus. For when Mary and Joseph have to take baby Jesus to Egypt, and when he comes back uh, to his homeland of Nazareth, Matthew will quote Hosea chapter 11 verse 1, out of Egypt I have called my son. Don't miss the analogy. What Matthew is showing us is where Israel went astray, Jesus will fulfill in every single way. Hosea went on to say, Israel is my son. Out of Egypt I have called my son. The more I call my son, the more he runs from me. Are there any parents that could give a hearty amen to that? I mean, you, you know what it is to have a strong-willed child. You know what it is for you to call your child's name. That child hears your voice, turns and acknowledges that you're calling for them to come to you, looks at you and says, eh, eh, not going to do it, and goes in the other direction. This is what the Lord says Israel is like. Israel, I've been calling you. You are my people. I've been wooing you. I've been 
calling to you, and, and you've heard my voice, but you've hardened your heart. And you run in the opposite direction. In Hosea chapter 11, you feel the Lord wrestle in his unconditional, unending, unmerited love for his people. He says, how can I give up Ephraim? How can I give over Israel? By their actions, they demand to be given up and to be given over. They are so rebellious towards the Lord, so defiant towards his word. They, they should be. They should be given up and given over, but the Lord says, my love for Ephraim, my love for Israel is so great, it's so vast. How can I do that? So he comes to, verse, uh, he comes to chapter 12, and he simply says to Israel, return to God. Return to God. Chapter 13, may you have no other God besides me, no other Savior except me. And then we come to our passage of chapter 14, verses 1 to 4. And not one time, but on two occasions, the Lord calls his people to return to him. He says it in verse 1. He says it in verse 2. The reality is, by our actions, we have defaulted on our ability to return to God. It is only through the grace of God that we can return to him. There's no good reason for God to reach out to us except for the fact that God is good. There's nothing inside of us that's good. There's nothing inside of us that merits God chasing after us. It is only because of the goodness and the greatness of God. It's because of God's unconditional love for us. It's because God is so good that he calls us to return to him. And he says it not once but twice. For in verse 1, the Lord simply says through the prophet Hosea, your sins are your downfall. Friend, do you realize your greatest problem is not a lack of money. It's not an overbearing boss. It's not a cantankerous spouse. It's not the crazy children. It's not over-the-top inflation. It's not left-winged woke agenda. It's not right-crusted conservatism. No, your greatest problem is sin. The greatest problem of all humanity is sin. Sin is our downfall. It's true for the people of God in the 8th century B.C. It's true of the people in the 21st century A.D. It is true for all of God's people. Our sin is our downfall. And we've got to own that. We've got to agree with God in that. That our greatest problem is our sinfulness. And so God says, I want you to return to me and return to me in repentance. Take words with you. What words are we supposed to take when we stand before God? Take words with you. What are the words that you and I are supposed to say? They're words of repentance. Oh God, forgive all our sins. We acknowledge that we're sinners. Please forgive all our sins, not just the big sins, not just the bad sins, not just the obvious sins, not just the current sins, not just a few sins, not just many sins, but please forgive all our sins, for we are sinful at the core of who we are, and we desperately need a Savior. Assyria cannot save us, 
And we will no longer look at the things that we create with our own hands and call them our gods. For there's only one God, the Lord Jesus Christ. In that day, Israel was flirting with Assyria, thinking that Assyria would ultimately save them against their other enemies, but Assyria would be the one who would overtake the northern kingdom of Israel. And by the time you get to the end of Hosea, here in chapter 14, the people finally discover Assyria cannot save us. Worldviews cannot save us. Current politicians cannot save us. The government cannot save us. Nothing in all of creation can save us except the God of creation. So everything that we craft, everything that we make, that we call our gods, they're nothing but idols. So God, please, we do not come with empty words or no words. We come and simply ask for you to forgive us. Now, how does God respond when we repent and return to him? He reconciles us. Did you hear what he said he would do in verse 4? I will heal. I'll love freely. I'll turn my love, I'll turn my anger away from you. Whoa. That's awesome. God says, when you come to me and you return to me in words of repentance, when you ask for forgiveness, this is what I promise to do for you. I will heal you. I will love you freely. And I will turn my holy, righteous wrath away from you towards someone else. Whoa, that is awesome for God to turn it off of us. And we just want to stop and say thank you. See, friends, when you and I read the book of Hosea, there are a couple of things that come to mind. Number one, your sin is that bad. Number two, your Savior is that good. Your sin really is that bad. It is your downfall. And your Savior really is that good. For he will heal you. He will love you freely. He will take his righteous anger off of you and place it upon the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. It was E.K. Bailey in his sermon on Hosea who said, You can break God's heart, but you can't break God's love. E.K. Bailey said that the ultimate big idea of the book of Hosea is God's unbreakable love to the unlovely. God's unbreakable love to the unlovely. In that sermon, he reminds the audience, don't ever forget that in this graphic object lesson, Don't forget that Hosea is always God and you are always Gomer. And he said it in a way that only E.K. Bailey could say it when he said, and I quote, don't ever forget, there's a little hoochie in all of us. There's a little hoochie in all of us. The heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. All of us have a longing, all of us have a desire to be sinful. All of us have a desire to go after the lovers of our spirit. All of us have a desire to pursue the passionate plans of our own devise and demise. All of us have a little hoochie inside of us. All of God's people are ex-something. We're ex-gossips, we're ex-liars, we're ex-fornicators, we're ex-adulterers. All of us have a sin problem. 
And it's only in Jesus Christ that we can be made whole again. So you and I come to this first book of the 12 minor prophets. And we read the book of Hosea. And Hosea is given to us to show us just how far we can go adrift from God. And to illustrate just how far God will go to retrieve us unto himself. You may think to yourself, but wait a minute, Pastor, I haven't gone adrift. I'm close to God. I mean, I'm living right there, right beside the Lord. Oh, really? Let me just ask you a few diagnostic questions. Has there ever been a time when you were more on fire for the Lord than you are today? Has there ever been a moment when you were more eager in evangelism than you are today? Has there ever been a time when you engaged in worship more than you did this morning? Has there ever been a moment when you were more excited to get to church than you were this morning? Has there ever been a time when you hungered for the holy things of God more than you do in these days? Has there ever been a time when priority of prayer was more prominent in your life than it is in this very moment? Has there ever been a time when you were sweeter and kinder and had a more uh, gentle disposition and demeanor than you do in this moment? If the answer is yes to any of those questions, friends, you have gone adrift. And when by God's grace, he shows you the slow leaks of your life, you return to him in repentance and you'll be reconciled to the righteous one. Keep in mind that on your spiritual journey of life, very rarely, Very rarely will you have a blowout. But you'll get derailed by a slow leak. It's just a gradual fade. How many of us have gone adrift? Today is a great day for us to return to God, take words of repentance with you, for we acknowledge that our sin is our downfall. Oh, Father, please forgive us of all our sins. And how much will God chase after you? How much will he heal you and love you freely and turn his anger away from you? Let me tell you, he will chase you through 42 generations. He will chase you from heaven to earth. He will chase you through the streets of Jerusalem with a crossbeam strapped to his back. He will chase you outside the city gate of Jerusalem, up a skull-shaped hill called Golgotha. He will chase you up Calvary's hill. He will chase you to hell and back on that faithful Friday. He will chase you to your own grave. He will chase you uh, to resurrection Sunday morning. He will chase you to the ascension to the heavens. He will chase you for all of eternity. I don't know about you, but I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene, and I wonder how he can love me a sinner condemned unclean but oh how marvelous and oh how wonderful and my song shall ever be oh how marvelous and oh how wonderful is my Savior's love for a heifer just like me what God has done for his people of the Old Testament he has done for you today he chases us in spite of our spiritual promiscuity So on this day, we hear the words of Hosea. We see, yes, just how adrift we can become. And we see the illustration of just how far-reaching God's holy, unconditional, unwavering love will reach out to receive us unto himself. It's a good reason, it's a good idea for us to gather around God's table today. 
When you and I come to this Lord's table, we are reminded of the sin that causes us to be adrift. We're also reminded of the extent that God would go to receive us and retrieve us and rescue us through the broken body and shed blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you're here today, and if you are a baptized believer in the Lord, I want you to know that Jesus, the host of the table, invites you to come to this communion. He he wants to minister to you. He wants to speak to you. He wants to hear from you. And as you stare into that piece of bread and into that cup representing his shed blood, when the Spirit of God reminds you of sin that you've allowed to fester in your life to cause you to go adrift, then today I want you to take words of repentance and reconciliation unto the Lord. And when you realize that God has forgiven you once again in Christ, even though you are as adulterous as Gomer, I want you to stop and just say, Jesus, thank you. Thank you for chasing after me to Calvary and back. So, If you're here today and you're a baptized believer, you're invited to come. We gather around this table because this table shows us what Hosea shows us. Our sin, it really is that bad. But our Savior, he really is that good. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. Lord, we pray that as we come and take the bread and take the cup, that you will speak, that you'll minister, that you'll serve. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.